0: No one should go to work and be assaulted, but it happens every single day to clinicians throughout Queensland. Lita Olson is a registered nurse and former clinical nurse consultant in one of the state's busiest emergency departments. Throughout her career, she's been verbally and physically assaulted and witnessed to horrendous assaults. Now, as the clinical lead for the award-winning Queensland Occupational Violence Strategy Unit, Lita has turned her attention to preventing occupational violence and helping to create a safer environment for clinicians. Hi Lita, thank you for joining us in the studio today. Thank you for having me. welcome. So you've been a registered nurse for 15 years, 12 of those you've spent in emergency. You've been assaulted, you've managed the aftermath of a horrendous assault on a number of your colleagues and you've said that every nurse and doctor you know has been assaulted. No one should go to work and be assaulted, so why does it happen?
1: Um, Look, I think... Violence is a community issue. This is um, not new to healthcare. Um, I think we're on a uh, trajectory where we're seeing more and more um, violence incidents. Um, And I think our most vulnerable community members come into hospital and um, I think we have a job to protect them. And I think it would be naive to think that the violence that happens within communities would not translate just because someone's in a hospital setting. Um, I guess it's really important to recognise that not all the violence that we see are from people who purposely go out to commit crimes or or to be violent against healthcare staff. There's a number of um, medical conditions, um, drugs and alcohol um, that can relate um, and I guess be a part of that patient's condition, um, and and we need to work to manage that.
0: And it's also such um, often such a stressful environment when you have a loved one who's very uh, unwell. Absolutely, or... people don't
1: come to hospital because they want to. Mm-hmm. You know, they come because um, you know they're in crisis, regardless of whether it be a medical or a psychological crisis. Um, and you know, we do what we can to help them.
0: So, Lita, when we talk about occupational violence, what are we talking about?
1: I guess. Um, Straight away, people think that it's the physical um, violence. Mm -hmm. Um, We have an endorsed definition um, and we certainly consider um, any abuse, threatening behaviour, harassment or physical assault um, in the course of an employee's um, role. Um, irrespective of the intent for harm. Um, and that's something that we use quite often. Um, I think it's really important to put in that the fact that it's um, irrespective of harm because, again, someone in um, a delirious state, uh, under the influence of drugs and alcohol, um, a mental health psychosis, um, these people aren't going out to necessarily harm us, um, but it doesn't mean that it's any less significant.
0: So the verbal abuse can be just as horrendous.
1: In fact, some of um, the most awful situations I've had to support colleagues through have been that really threatening um, and intimidating um, violence, if you like. And I think that's something that sticks to people just as much because they can close their eyes and hear that person say those things and they, you know, they have to live with that. And, you know, all of it carries the risk of of a psychological injury to staff. Mm. Scary.
0: Where do most incidents of occupational violence happen within the healthcare setting?
1: I think people think it's EDs and mental health um, and dementia wards, but look, I don't think anyone's immune. It happens in community settings. It happens, um, you know, in clinics, in certainly in emergency departments and mental health, uh, dementia delirium wards. They are the highest reporting, um, or usually the highest reporting areas, uh, but certainly not to say that they are the only areas that experience violence.
0: So in a 12-month period up to November last year, more than 6,000 Queensland Health staff reported being assaulted. It's a shocking figure.
1: Why is it so high? Um, I think we're actually up to just over 9,000 in it. Oh, really? Yeah. So, look, the statistics are are quite horrifying um, and I guess for us – as a, as a central unit, we actually uh, feel like we're only just scratching the tip of the iceberg. Underreporting is a global phenomenon. It's not new to healthcare um, and it's certainly not um, unique to Australia or even Queensland. Um, this is something that is recognised and it goes from, you know, uh, people not having time to report, people also accepting it. There's a huge ethical dilemma around, um, you know, it's my job to go in and treat this person. I couldn't possibly um, not treat them just because they're treating me this way or because they can't help it. Um, so, yeah, I think concerningly we are just at the tip of the iceberg.
0: So you were 30 weeks pregnant when you were punched in the stomach during a clinical shift in the emergency department. How did you recover from that and was it hard to return to work?
1: Um, I think I was shocked. For me, I thought, what the hell has happened here and how could you know an intoxicated 50-year-old, um, you know, just, you know, uh, openly inflict something like that. Like, I feel like he was aware of that situation. Um, At the time, I guess a lot of areas um, rally around you. You know, I was certainly very supported by uh, my emergency colleagues, nursing, medical, security. Um, They certainly wrapped around me and rallied around to make sure that I was okay and obviously make sure um, that my daughter was okay. She's fine. Um, She's a chatty little... Um, eight year old now, so she's awesome. good. Um, but I guess it wasn't hard initially to deal with that, it was more the shock factor. Uh, for me, the hardest part was um, reporting the incident to the police and going through that process. That was something that was very new to me um, and really, really confronting. I'm not used to being on that side of the law, um, so that was quite. Quite
0: scary, and was that the first time you had ever been physically or um, verbally abused? Just a- oh, certainly not you verbally, oh, right? No, oh. um, yeah,
1: no. Then no, no. I guess um, when I was physically assaulted, when I was pregnant, I you know I was ten years into my nursing career, and um, yeah, it certainly wasn't the first time I'd been verbally abused. Uh, from a physical point of view, I think I'd had the occasional um, you know pinch from or arm grab from a a little demented nana. Um, But again, I I took that because she couldn't help it and didn't know and I never reported it. And, um, yeah, it was certainly my one and only Touchwood significant physical assault.
0: Something that struck me when I was preparing for our interview, and you mentioned it um, previously, was the fact that many staff who have been assaulted then have to be involved in the court process if the offender is charged. I imagine this would make it even more difficult to recover from an assault. It
1: can make or break your experience. It is not easy to go to a police station and sit there and be interviewed and um, be questioned and, I guess, made to feel like you may have done something wrong. Um, We've created a lot of fabulous relationships with the police um, and our external agencies, and that has been instrumental I think in in changing that culture around um, people feeling comfortable to report and historically we've had um, you know the police say the patient's a mental health patient um, nothing it'll just go through the mental health court there's not much we can do about it but we're changing that as well you know yes they may have a condition but were they psychotic at that time Um, and At the end of the day it doesn't even matter because you were the victim of an assault um, regardless of whether it be a threatening or harassment or or physical assault um, you as a community member have the right to make a complaint to the police it does suck that you have to then be involved in the court process and it's not a quick process Um, I don't think I've heard of um, a staff member going to uh, court or or the um, complaint actually going before the courts before 18 months. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, we're talking a long time down the track and that's something that you have to then relive um, and carry on or try and remember when it gets to court, how how the incident occurred. And, um, you know, so it's really important that, you know, our middle managers and our colleagues are supporting us us through that process. It
0: it just takes that much longer for you to be able to move on from it if you're continually having to... As you say, go over it, relive it,
1: and that's. I guess that's just one part of the court process. If it's if it's an assault that involves a bodily fluid or something like that, we have staff members who are then having you know three monthly blood tests to make sure that they haven't contracted anything. Um, you know, so there, there's so many um, aspects of the violence that's happening within our healthcare settings that translates then to family life, and to relationships, and work. And you know, it's it's not easy. And um, yeah. I guess it's just one really challenging piece of the puzzle but we would always support our colleagues and encourage them to make a complaint to the police because if nothing else it builds a case against you know the person um or the perpetrator from doing it again. yes. So I've heard you speak about a
0: particular incident when you were on shift as a clinical nurse consultant in emergency uh, one Sunday morning. That was a turning point in your career. Mm -hmm. Can you share that
1: with us? Yeah, sure. Um, So it was a Sunday morning and it was about 7.30 in the morning and I'd just taken handover from my night shift um, coordinator and I had a phone call from an adjoining mental health unit um, and as I answered I could just hear like muffled um, scraffling sort of sounds. Um, so I, I hung up. Um, I tried to call the number back and it was engaged. The number then called me back um, and all I could hear was screams for help. So um, I grabbed one of my consultant colleagues and we ran in there. And um, unfortunately, security, or fortunately, security had arrived just at that time, um, but it saw uh, all three of the nursing staff physically assaulted, one with a head injury. Um, and it was yeah quite a horrifying scene uh, looked somewhat like a bloodbath um, I then had to I then had you know a number of uh, mental health patients in an open area we had to close the the unit for uh, from I guess a crime scene point of view we had to call the police um, we then had to bring all the staff back to be treated as well as the perpetrator um, that was very very confronting for us to have to treat someone. Um, who, you know, has obviously just inflicted all of this pain and, and suffering onto um, our colleagues, our mental health colleagues. So for me, it was imperative that we um, did everything we could for them. Obviously, we treated them for their medical um, injuries, uh, but we also needed to make sure that, that they were okay. And um, yeah, for me, it was just an absolute shock. And it was an absolute turning point for me to um, move move on from not knowing how to support someone to really not needing to know what I could do in that situation because I'm pretty sure I wasn't alone, that most um, shift coordinators or team leaders or colleagues wouldn't know how to support someone in that in that
0: space. And that was what that incident really highlighted for you, wasn't Hugely. it? Hugely, yeah. yeah. We
1: are all just winging it and I don't think that there were – I'd certainly never had any sort of training or succession planning or um, understanding of, of what the steps were to escalate that sort of situation, even something as simple as calling triple zero and closing – whole mental health unit is something so foreign and would just never normally happen. Um, so yeah, I literally was just winging it. Yeah, and I bet it's something that sticks with you. hundred percent. Mm. Yeah. It's something that, but I guess for me, uh, it's my reason for, for keep doing what I do. I use that every time. Um, I guess every time I go to work, I think of that. That's my reason. I want to be able to protect our hundred thousand odd employees in Queensland health. And I can't stop the incidents from happening, and it would be naive to suggest that we could. Um, but what I can do is hope that I can support, or you know, as a unit, help put in um, initiatives in place to be able to um, make sure that no one else ever has to be in that situation.
0: So you said that that was a turning point for you. Um, in what ways? That did you start training
1: staff? Um, I guess it was a real light bulb moment for me. Um, I I started to work out, you know, I was in the emergency department at the time and I really started poking the bear and challenging the way that we manage these situations and and really having those conversations between security and emergency and mental health um, and just staff in general around what's acceptable and what's not and how we do have a right to put our self-safety first and it's that ethical dilemma. We don't well, what do you mean? I have a right to pull back. I actually feel like I need to deliver healthcare, and and that's my job. Um, it's very difficult to prioritise, and and it's hard to explain that to non clinicians, and and to really get them to understand that. I know that I know in my gut that I shouldn't go into that situation, but I will because I need to, you know, do a dressing or whatever the situation might be. Um, so, yeah, we started a lot of local conversations, um, really helping change the way that we viewed security in the department as well. And they're really our ally. Um, they come in when everybody else runs out. And so, you know, we needed to start valuing them um, and and lifting their profile. And that's not easy to change years and years of culture around, um, around security and the use of them in the healthcare setting. Um, and I also started to look at the escalation processes around how we – Um, would manage a situation like that in the future. So when you spoke at
0: the Senate's Health and Wellbeing of the Workforce meeting in 2019, you presented about the Occupational Violence Incidents Response Kit. Mm. Um, What is it and is it doing what you'd hoped it would do?
1: Um, So the Incident Response Kit is my baby. It is something that I am so incredibly proud of um, in its development and production and now rollout across Queensland. Um, It is exactly what was missing for me at the time. So we did some interviews with um, staff who had been um, involved in OV incidents and we said to them, how do you feel you were supported during that? Um, And, and, you know, would they share their story? Um, I don't think in you know 10 odd years of nursing at that point that i was prepared for the responses that i heard i never thought that i thought i'd seen it all you know um but hearing some of the stories they were just mind-blowing um and and it really highlighted that i was not alone that managers really didn't know and all the staff wanted were little things they just wanted someone to call them and ask them if they were okay they wanted someone to explain the return to work process most of them didn't even know that um you know they could call the police or that um the work cover process they just had no idea and so they were really missing that and don't get me wrong you know line managers um particularly in the nursing um, sphere are you know often underworked. they're doing rosters and they're um you know coordinating units and they, they often have a, a patient load as well. so Very busy. And people don't um, – I don't think people don't want to call them, but they don't know that they're allowed to call them and or offer them a taxi voucher to go home or, um, you know, help support them or get the police to come to the hospital and do a statement. It was just completely uncharted territory. So I guess for me, the incident response kits, we were able to use those um, – interviews with staff around their really horrifying stories um, and bring a group of middle managers, those nurse unit managers and nurse educators and um, admin managers to the table and ask them how they felt that they would do it. And they all knew the tick boxes that needed to be done, incident reporting and um, sending them home and getting medical certificates and all that sort of stuff, but we missed the personal stuff. We missed how to connect with our staff and make sure that they were actually okay. Um And they just needed to be empowered. They just didn't know what they didn't know um, was available to them. So um, we spoke as a unit and asked if it was something that we could progress to create something, some sort of resource that really outlined that to staff um, and hence the creation of the Incident Response Kit. So you're now the clinical lead
0: for the Queensland Occupational Violence Strategy Unit, which is a statewide unit. What have you been tasked to do?
1: Um, Well, initially we were... um, set up to roll out the recommendations from the 2016 um, review into occupational violence in Queensland Health Hospital and Health Services, Um, and out of those 20 recommendations, the government accepted all of those, Uh, and so we were tasked with rolling out initiatives relating to those. Um, Those 20 recommendations have evolved into a mere... 113 bodies of work for a team of, a little baby team of five of us. Um, And look, it's an absolute honour for me to be the clinician representative on the team. So um, our role is very much a strategic role. We've got amazing um, security and occupational violence prevention units in most of our health services. Um, We get to connect with those people um, right down from, you know, the nurses on the ground right up to the the chief executives and executives in most health services. So we're very lucky to be able to have that sort of breadth and um, networks across Queensland. So um, out of those recommendations, um, I guess a number of tangible bodies of work have come out of that. Um, But there's not just one, you know, it's not just about education and training. We we look at policies and um and localized procedures and um post incident support and things like that. So all of the work we do falls under one of the four pillars. So uh, around awareness, prevention, um, during the incident, and post incident support. So yeah, everything aligns like that. And how are clinical staff responding to the work that you're doing? Um overwhelmingly they're so excited that there's a central unit that is now permanently funded and, you know, absolutely supported. We're very lucky in Queensland Health that, that they have made an absolute commitment that they will um, continue to progress this work to make sure that we are doing everything um possible to support our staff. Um, it is a challenge to try and communicate to you know ninety to hundred thousand people, but we're getting out there and we're meeting staff and we travel around to all the health services. Um, we've been to nearly all of them now, um, with the exception of just a couple, but um, we'll continue to to do that as time goes on and so that we can get out and meet the staff so that we actually are connected with them and know, what their challenges are and how we can help them. And so that they know that you're there as well. Exactly, yeah.
0: So I understand that another proposed strategy for emergency departments is security officers providing resources to waiting patients and updating them on the reason they're waiting, such as critical patients are being treated. Is this being trialled as yet?
1: Uh, Yes, so so it's known as the ambassador model and it Mm -hmm. was based on a Canadian model that um, used sort of covert security officers or really um, that unauthoritarian security officer within the emergency department Um, and that had like massive um, success in in Canada. It's something that we thought we would trial um, as well. So uh, a number of facilities and health services have actually adopted the ambassador model and it's been hugely successful, if from nothing else, then from staff feeling safer. So um, security officers are, you know, wearing polo shirts and they're interacting with people and and just greeting them and, again, people aren't coming to emergency departments because – they want to. They're coming because they feel like they're in a time of crisis, or because something catastrophic has happened. Um, and it's really about choosing the right person for that role as well. So, the ambassador is um, the conduit between the clinical staff and you know the um, the patients and the external services. So. Um, the ambulance, the police, and, and helping um, really piece together that, that patient's journey or, or what could be going on with them. Um, offering them, you know, kids colouring in packs if they need to. There's patient buzzers for if a patient wants to go outside and have a breath of fresh air, then, you know, without so losing their wait. space. I yeah. <clears throat> love you that know? idea. So they're really simple um, strategies, but things that have been, you know, shown to be really successful. What are
0: some of the other key strategies that the unit has developed and rolling out?
1: Um, so there's a number of them um, from a clinical point of view, uh, something like the behaviour modification chart has been something that's been really successful um, that uses the BROSET violence checklist, which is an internationally validated clinical tool um, as a predictor of the um, Of aggression, So there's six key behavioural traits that act as precursors to aggression um, and it's a really simple tool. So we've built in a matrix on how to respond as well. So we find that, you know, there's stacks of clinical tools out there, but people don't know what to do when they score, um, you know, highly or if it's out of the normal range. So we've been able to incorporate that and that's something that um, has been involved, uh, has been in use in a number of health services um, and it's seeing more and more use. We've recently rolled out um, occupational violence prevention training. So um, Mabo is the uh, was a successful vendor um, and that training is being rolled out across most health services um, now or in the very near future. And that is a real um, de-escalation focus as well. So very much around prioritising your own safety to be able to support your um, your patients and, and your other staff. Um, and... Um, we've got most health services have got occupational violence prevention trainers so they're now accredited trainers. Um, I guess the only other big thing uh, from a clinical point of view is the unacceptable behaviour framework and that's something that we worked really closely with um, Metro North Legal Services so although we're based in Metro North we're um, funded, we're hosted by Metro North but funded by the Director General so we um, Metro North legal kindly assisted in the development of the framework and that is a really simple algorithm um, that actually strips away some of that legal um, jargon, if you like, around um, how to prioritise your own safety and when um, there is no need for life or limb-threatening intervention or care to be given that we actually can... um, highlight that there's an imminent threat and actually remove the patient from that situation. So it's very much a non-punitive pathway. Uh, We don't want people to say that, you know, you're never welcome back here. That's not where we're going at all. It's very much about removing the threat from that point. And then when the patient comes back, it's just about setting boundaries and saying that, you know, if you're happy to receive the treatment, then we'll do it, but you need to behave in a way that's appropriate for other patients and staff. What is your key message that you would like to leave with
0: with clinicians and, and frontline staff?
1: Um, I guess if I could say anything, it's we see you, we hear you, we know that you're on the front line doing this all the time and we're here to support you. We may not have all the answers yet, but we are a permanent unit and we, um, we really want you to keep reporting so we can keep, you know, building cases to say that, you know, there is an issue and it's ongoing, but we, we need you to report and tell us about these situations so that we can help you better. Lita, thank you so much
0: for chatting with us today. It's been really fantastic.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.